Amen. When's the last time you heard a sermon on the book of Judges? For most of us, the answer is never. Why is that? It's because the book of Judges is the Game of Thrones of the Bible. It's not just a text of terror. It's an entire book of terror. The book should come with a trigger warning, like reading could be hazardous to your spiritual health. Overall, the book is pretty dark. Israel failed to drive the Canaanites from the land, so the narrator begins ominously saying, this is a story about Israel's utter moral failure and the catastrophic results. The book then includes 12 stories of Israel's judges becoming progressively more violent and disturbing. First, we have Ehud, the slick assassin who's good with a the dagger. Then Deborah, Barak, and Jael, where a tent peg gets hammered through someone's head. Up next, a coward named Gideon leads Israel into idolatry and starts an intertribal civil war. He's followed up by a hilltub, hilltop thug named Jephthah, who's so unfamiliar with God he tries to sacrifice his own daughter. Then there's the ridiculously strong, violent, sex-crazed maniac Samson who dies in a bloody act of vengeance against his enemies. Afterwards, we're treated to two stories of Israel hitting rock bottom. Eventually, the tribe of Dan slaughters the peaceful people of Laish. Finally, after that, then, uh, to top it all off, a woman from Gibeon is destroyed. And then those who destroyed her, they destroy all the tribes that killed her. And then when they regret, regret, regret their actions, they decide to take out all their remorse on the young women in the tribe of Benjamin. It gets very dark and violent. Now we cue the song, I love to tell the story. <laughs> Twill be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Israel and her judges. Judges is one of the most violent and bloody books in the Bible. And like Game of Thrones, it may excite and entertain, but these are stories that motivate religious violence and cause us to wonder, do they have any redeeming value? Should we just give up on this story, this book? You won't find the stories of judges in any children's Bibles except the Awkward Moments Children's Bible, which of course I purchased for Carrie for her, her reading pleasure. <laughs> the judges are not Marvel superheroes for us to admire. They are not role models or moral exemplars. Their stories are cautionary tales, parables about what not to do. In fact, one of the most important things that we can take from the book of Judges is that the Bible is not a simple handbook for life. We can't just pick it up and mimic what we see there. If we do, we will hurt someone. Or perpetuate the idea that calloused violence toward women, foreigners, and enemies is a part of what it means to be a religious and political leader. The Bible is not, as I heard preachers growing up say, our basic instructions before leaving earth. A wonderful acronym. No, it is ancient literary art, spiritual, mystical writings, mythology, stories that require context, complex analysis, deep critical reflection, and pouring over them with a fine-tooth comb. The most common reference that we have to the book of Judges in contemporary society is the famous song by Leonard Cohen, Hallelujah, which has been covered by hundreds of artists over the years. The lyrics are hauntingly beautiful. Love is not a victory march or a cry you hear at night or somebody who's seen the light. It is a cold and it is a broken hallelujah. Throughout the 
song Cohen references biblical characters like David and Bathsheba and Mary and Jesus and Samson the judge. Yes, she tied you to a kitchen tear. She broke your throne and she cut your hair. And from your lips she drew a hallelujah. Powerful lyrics. But the problem is, this is all anyone knows about Samson. His ill-fated relationship with Delilah, who was paid by the Philistines to cut his hair, eliminate his power, and take him into slavery. What a love story. In fact, every movie or song made about Samson in Western history mentions his relationship with Delilah from the 1877 opera by Camille Saint-Saëns to the 1949 Academy Award-winning film by Cecil B. DeMille, to the blues song about Samson's life from 1927 by Bind Willie Johnson that's been covered by everyone from the Staples singers to the Grateful Dead to Willie Nelson to Patty Griffin. We just can't help ourselves. We love to make love stories out of the Bible when there is no love there to speak of. Judges is not a romance novel. Depicting Samson's life as a love story really messes up the definition of romantic love. And it obscures what he meant to the people of Israel. He was not considered a lover, but a deliverer, like Moses. This is coming, becoming clearer in scholarship now. Last year, two professors at Temple published a book titled Black Samson the untold story of an American icon, where they demonstrate how integral the figure of Samson has been in American history. Throughout the story of our nation, Samson has been consistently portrayed as a black man, including on the History Channel's recent miniseries, The Bible. In scripture, Samson was blinded, captured, and enslaved. Therefore, early Americans connected his experience with enslaved Africans, leading to Samson's conceptualization as a black man in American culture. Samson also sacrificed himself at the end of his life to kill countless Philistines. So, black leaders like Malcolm X saw Samson as a martyr for the cause of freedom. In 1859, when abolitionist John Brown was executed for starting a revolt, Frederick Douglass compared his actions to Samson, claiming that, like Samson, John Brown had laid his hands upon the pillars of the great national temple of cruelty and blood. In 1923, Marcus Garvey said, if the world fails to give you consideration because you are black, 400 million of you shall throughout organization shake the pillars of the universe and bring down creation as Samson brought down the temple upon his head and the head of the Philistines. For others, however, Samson's quest for vengeance was unpalatable and irreconcilable. Dr. King rejected the idea that Samson was a martyr or model for emulation. Writer Ralph Ellison pointed out that Samson did bad things like lead an innocent boy to his death. Many argued that the Samson complex was morally ambiguous and dangerous for black people in America, perpetuating the deadly stereotype of black men as big, strong, violent, sexually aggressive, and scary. And this is why in her novel, The Bluest Eye, Toni Morrison claimed, ain't no Samson ever come to a good end. Black writers and activists have often disagreed on the interpretation of Samson because there's no victor amid the rubble of the Philistine temple, making Samson's story a haunting analogy for the hope and horror of race relations. Yet the multitude of engagements with Samson illustrate how compelling this story has been for those seeking freedom and justice. They could see beyond his relationship with Delilah that Samson was set apart by God 
to deliver his people, to free them from the hands of their oppressors. Our attempts to make the Bible into a Hallmark movie or an HBO show lose sight of the message of deliverance at the heart of Samson's story. And one of the reasons we never understand this is we never read the beginning of the story. Judges 13 never appears in the revised common lectionary. Most Christians have never heard the story of Samson's birth, which is a shame. Because as you heard this morning, it's an incredible story. A foreshadowing story that anticipates the stories of Hannah and Elizabeth and Mary, the birth of Samuel and John the Baptist and Jesus. To be honest with you, it feels a little like Christmas today, not just because we're celebrating love feasts, but because we have a story where an angel appears to a woman to tell her she's going to give birth to a very special child. There's an annunciation here. There's a calling. There's a promise of a deliverer who will come. There's even a bumbling and befuddled husband. Upon hearing the news from his wife that she was visited by an angel, Samson's soon-to-be father, Manoah, acts exactly like Zechariah. This could be the Gospel of Luke. The parallels between the birth of Samson and John the Baptist are astonishing. Maybe we should have sung the Benedictus this morning. The biggest problem, though, with this story is that the main character here doesn't have a name. Samson's mother joins hundreds of other nameless women in the Bible who don't have a name or a voice. But, interestingly, even without a name, she does have a voice, a strong voice. So it will not work to call her Manoah's wife or Samson's mother. In the rabbinic tradition, her name is Hazelel Pony, which means the one who faces the shadow. And I don't want to have to say Hazelel Pony 500 times today. So we're going to abbreviate her name to Hazel. Like Hagar and Sarah and Hannah and Elizabeth and Mary, Hazel found favor with God and an angel of the Lord appeared to her to tell her that she would conceive and bear a son who would deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, Most women in the Bible who are visited by an angel get the promise of a child, but not instructions on how to raise it. Be careful not to drink wine or strong drink. Eat nothing unclean. Let no razor come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite from birth to death. The word Nazarite means consecrated one, set apart one. And the laws for making a Nazarite vow came from number six. It was intended to be an ex extremely serious vow that people would willingly take on to dedicate themselves to God for a temporary period of time in their lives. Never had it been chosen for someone while they were still in the womb or taken upon them for a lifetime. To fulfill this divine calling, though, Hazel would have to take on the vow herself during her pregnancy to ensure that Samson would be consecrated for, to God from the day that he was born. And the crazy thing here is that Hazel just accepted God's calling to her with no word, as if it was totally reasonable. She didn't ask the angel where it came from or what its name was. She didn't even question the angel's commands. She simply went and told her husband, matter of fact, what the angel said. But Manoah, mm, he could not receive this from Hazel. He started praying immediately after hearing from her that God would come again and tell him directly what to do with their child, which is ridiculous because his wife had just told him what to do. It's obvious that Manoah did not trust his wife, Hazel. 
and would not take her word for what the angel said. So the angel returned at his request, but not to Manoah, back to Hazel again, just as before. And this time, Hazel was not playing. She knew what was going to happen. So she went and got her husband to prove that there was an angel and that she had recited exactly what it said. But Manoah still asked the angel, what is to be this child's rule of life, as if his wife hadn't already told him. And then the angel says, just do what your wife told you I said to do. It's not hard. Manoah is clueless. And yet his ridiculous antics continue like a TV sitcom. And in verses of the scripture that we didn't read, he tries to make a meal for the angel, but the angel won't eat it. He tries to get the angel's name, but the angel won't give it. He tries to make an altar and sacrifice an offering to the angel, but the angel turns into a massive flame of fire and blows up the altar. And then Manoah cries out to his wife in desperation, we're all going to die. And Hazel calmly replies, chill out. If he was going to kill us, he would have done it already. And why was Manoah so crazy and Hazel so chill in this story? Manoah wasn't going to have to carry the child in his body like Hazel was. Manoah wasn't going to have to take on a Nazarite vow like Hazel was during her pregnancy. Hazel should have been the one running around, freaking out, making ridiculous requests. But while she was totally relaxed, Manoah was losing his mind, spinning out of control. Why? There must be a clue. Well, there's one in Manoah's name. In Hebrew, Manoah means the one who rests. It's rather ironic here because Manoah was the opposite of rest in this story. He was the embodiment of anxiety, trying to control the situation, hoping to prove himself, engaging in manic hyperactivity, over-functioning to the point where he got so worked up he thought he was going to die. The one who was named for rest had lost his integrity. He was in a frenzy. But not Hazel. She was cool as a cucumber. Why? She was ready. She was ready. Ready to follow the angel's instructions. Ready to conceive and bear a child she'd been waiting for so long. Ready to take on whatever vows were required of her. Ready to receive deliverance from her own childlessness and ready to receive deliverance for her people through the strength of her son. Ready to face her husband's doubt, distrust, and dismissal. Ready to be the rock that her family could rely on. Ready to get her husband Manoah through his anxiety and fear. Ready to be what God needed her to be in that moment, to do what God needed her to do, to play the role God needed her to play in the cosmic drama of deliverance. Would we be ready if God came to us? Only one force in the universe is powerful enough to prepare Hazel, or any of us for that matter, to be ready to play the role that God has called us to play in the work of deliverance, and that is gratitude. It's hard to be grateful when you've always had everything you want in life, but Hazel had not had everything she wanted in life. She had been longing for a child, missing a child, hoping for a child, waiting for a child in a society that determined a woman's worth based on their ability to have a child, suffering with a husband who didn't trust her. So when this opportunity arrived, she was ready. And she must have exploded 
with gratitude, the kind of gratitude that makes you ready to face any calling, no matter how demanding, any commitments, no matter how hard, any challenges that lie ahead, contrary to what many of us believe. Joy doesn't lead to gratitude. It's the other way around. Gratitude leads to joy. Gratitude is not a random feeling we experience as the response to just the beauty and the goodness of life. Gratitude is also a spiritual practice that we can engage in to spark joy in ourselves and in others. Gratitude is a resource that has the power to eviscerate our anxiety. In fact, it's often the case that summoning immense gratitude is required to break the deathly pattern of fear and greed and anger and anxiety in our lives. Gratitude is often the only thing that can get our minds off of ourselves and onto other people and onto what God is doing in the world, the work of delivering people from scarcity into God's beloved community of abundance. When the unexpected comes in life, with a new and difficult calling, with harsh vows that we may have to uphold, and challenging people like Manoah who are standing in opposition to the path that we know that we need to walk, there is a wellspring inside of us that is fed by the tributaries of God's liberative activity in our history and the Spirit's movement in our lives that we can draw strength from. We merely need to look inside and remember the opposite of gratitude is forgetfulness. We need to look inside and remember where we've been from, where we've come from, all we've been through, how far we've gone, the pain we've endured, all the losses we've lived through, the grace we've been given, the struggles we've overcome, and re realize we're still here. God has been with us. And be grateful. Poet David White wrote, Gratitude is not a passive response to something we have been given. Gratitude arises from paying attention, from being awake in the presence of everything that lives within and without us. Gratitude is not necessarily something that is shown after the event. It is a deep state of attention, he says, that shows we understand and are equal to the gifted nature of life. Manoah was filled with anxiety. He could not receive this news as a gift because he was worried about the future. But Hazel remembered the past with gratitude and therefore could be ready for deliverance in the present. We may be living in evil days similar to those of the book of Judges, but God is working now just as God was in the days of the judges. Hazel's story in Samson's life teaches us that deliverance is messy business, but so is incarnation, so is resurrection, so is transformation, so is liberation. For some mysterious reason, God loves using imperfect people and flawed leaders to set people free, which means there's hope for all of us and there's a role for each of us to play in God's movement toward freedom. There is much for us to be anxious of and about in these days. But the promise of this season that we are about to enter into is the possibility of deliverance 
deliverance from all our fears and failures, all our illusions and delusions, all our anxiety and anger, all our inequalities and injustices. The promise of deliverance is that we can go from our life as it is to our life as it could be, from our community as it is to our community as it could be, from our church as it is to our church as it could be, from our world as it is to our world as it could be. Don't we all want this kind of deliverance? If so, then we have to prepare ourselves for it. And the only way to get ready for deliverance is through the art of gratitude. Anxiety cannot prepare us for deliverance. It fumbles and bumbles about like Manoa. It gets in the way. It's an obstacle. But gratitude makes a way where there is no way. It turns like hazel inward to remember all the shadows that we have faced in life and outward with a courage to face all the shadows that may be coming. The writer Melody Beatty once wrote, gratitude unlocks the fullness of life. It turns what we have into enough and more. It turns denial into acceptance, chaos into order, confusion to clarity. It can turn a meal into a feast a house into a home, and a stranger into a friend. People, we must get ready. Deliverance is coming. The Messiah is coming. Jesus is coming. And gratitude is the discipline we need to prepare for it and to discover the role that God has for us to play in the deliverance of the world. Without gratitude, our anxiety will overtake us and imprison us. But with gratitude... All the doors and the windows are wide open. The possibilities are endless. Nothing is impossible with a God who is always calling us to take our place in the drama of the deliverance of the world. And all we have to do to get ready is say, thank you. Amen. <laughs>